Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to attend the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to attend the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com. 18 plus be gambleaware.org T's and C's apply Hello and welcome to TalkSport's Game Day podcast with me Sam Matterface TalkSport's Chief Football Correspondent Alex Crook and Spanish expert Manchester United and Tottenham forward extraordinaire FA Cup winner with Wimbledon Terry Gibson is on the podcast today. Coming up, Manchester City see off Manchester United in the FA Cup final and now just one win away from an historic treble. We'll bid up to West Ham's Conference League final against Fiorentina. Spurs close in on Ange Postacoglu. And as Karim Benzema leaves Real Madrid, we'll ask Terry who could replace him at the Bernabeu. Could it be Harry Kane? It's all on the Game Day podcast from TalkSport. Morning, Crookie. Nice to see you wearing a, a tablecloth around your neck there uh, on top of your boss shirt. That uh, looks very smart. Did you just go on the website and find out like, the worst possible boss polo shirt or something? Do you know, I, I ordered a couple. Uh, one was just a sort of plain black number. And yeah, I thought I'd be a bit more ambitious with this one for the summer gold season ahead. <laughs> You do like you do like to be a little bit uh, uh, out there, don't you? Um, Terry Gibson is here for the first time. It's lovely to have you, Terry. You're right. I'm very well, and always a pleasure to make a debut. So it's uh, you know it's uh, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. This. Did you, did you used to score on your debuts? Is that what you used to do? I do remember on my debuts. Yes, I, I did score for commentary on my debut. Didn't score for Wimbledon and Manchester United was a weird one because I had about three sub appearances for about five minutes each game before I made my full debut, which was at Liverpool, away at Liverpool. Um, nice. And my Tottenham debut, I remember. Yes, I was only seventeen years old and six days and. I remember getting kicked to bits by a hefty old back four of Stoke City, but getting a stand innovation as we won one nil, got my shirt ripped. And fortunately, because it was uh, not often in those days, I was able to keep my match shirt because it was ripped from the neck down to the waist after being trampled on, <laughs> on the floor. Usually you have to give them back and be washed and used again, right? Oh, back they, in, lasted, the they lasted about three years, those shirts. Almost as long as Edison's lucky underpants. Yeah, the kit man <laughs> who never got a shirt off a kit man. It was the only the only time I can remember anyone keeping shirts was cup finals. That was the only shirt they kept. But the rest of it, it was the the life cycle of a match worn shirt back in the seventies and eighties was about three years, and then it was passed on to the reserves. So they were they were hard wearing. <laughs> they were tough old shirts. Those shirts back in the day, the old Admiral kits. They were tough wearing. So making your debut and getting kicked around by a big, uh, burly Stoke centre-half is a little bit like coming into the Game Day podcast studio, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> so be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> because the big, lumpy centre-half is, uh, is, just, is just in the frame to your left. Um, right, OK. <laughs> Let's move on to the uh, FA Cup final over the weekend. Manchester City clinched the double. They're going for the treble. Uh, Crook and I were at the game. Uh, Terry was doing it for Sky Sports News this week as well, so... We're all well across it. It was particularly impressive from Ilkay Gundogan. It wasn't a great vintage Manchester City performance, but when you're in this situation and closing in on all three big, big trophies, they all count. The 2023 FA Cup final is a game that will be talked about for years to come. They realise they're creating their own headlines, their own legacy. The noisy neighbours on song have never been louder. And it has taken them only 12 seconds. It's an extraordinary start. Ilkay Gundogan picking one in from the edge of the penalty area. Only Inter Milan can stop them now. The cap is the best way to prepare the most important 
game in, in a city life. Enjoy the moment, close the cycle, and it, in, in its own time, we will start looking at the next one. Left footed effort from Gundogan, oh, it's in! It's crept through past David De Gea! That's the level like you've got to get to now under Pep Guardiola, the way that this Manchester City side it is just a winning machine. Manchester City, the last one standing. Their name inscribed on the cup for a seventh time, but the circumstances have surely never been sweeter than this. Treble is on. It is just absolutely incredible. Manchester City clinched the double, and the treble is one win away. Our City going to win the treble, definitely, maybe. I mean, this wasn't by design, but I think it is worth pointing out um, that um, the first goal comes after 13 seconds. And I think I've seen it constructed in a similar way before. Maybe we should ask someone who used to play for Wimbledon about that. Um, and Martin Samuel in the Times on Sunday says, only Guardiola can create a side who play like Barcelona one game and Wimbledon the next. Uh, Terry, have you seen that move before? <laughs> yes, and I, I, unfortunately, I used to be too embarrassed. Actually, when you look at the goal, Gundogan takes the, the kickoff, doesn't he? Takes the kickoff all the way back towards Hagen and just strolls into an attacking position. It's... Lumped downfield, but of course it's Manchester City, so it's a pass from Ortega to Haaland. He wins the header. De Bruyne tussles and bus- hustles and bustles for the the knockdown, and then Gundogan finishes it with a fine volley. It could have been Gibson all the way back to Besson, Besson to Fashionu, Gibson not chasing the knockdown, and then Vinnie Jones smashing in from thirty yards. But maybe it might not have looked as refined. Um, but that was what we used to do. It, it was. I was slightly embarrassed to take kickoff and go all the way back to the goalkeeper. Our other routine was to take the kickoff and then put it in the corner flag and hope it goes out for a throw. It wasn't a betting thing. It was to try and pin them in the corner to win the ball back from the throw in. And our aim was to get a cross into the box or a long throw into the penalty box within the first minute of the game. So it, I was astonished when I saw it. Manchester City haven't quite gone down that route yet. Um, Crook, what was it like? You were standing in front of the Manchester United fans. You just got yourself set, hadn't you, uh, to pitch side, to be the pitch side reporter behind the goal in front of your beloved Manchester United. I think he said to me, Red Army, uh, uh, on the text message. What was it like when you just got set, looked up and saw the goal fly in past David De Gea? It was scarcely believable, uh, to be honest. I'd, I'd been there a while to soak up the atmosphere and, and, and watch the warm-ups just in case there were uh, any injuries picked up, which uh, thankfully for both sides there weren't. But the United fans were very boisterous, very noisy, probably outsung Manchester City in the build-up to kick-off. But that strike from Gundogan absolutely sucked the life out of them for a good few minutes. And I, I said to Jim Prowf, actually, who threw to me soon after the goal, I don't know who are more shocked. The United fans behind me, or the players on the pitch, because apart from Casemiro, who was sort of gesticulating for his teammates to calm down, there's plenty of time to get back in this game, they looked as stunned as the rest of us. And I think it took them a long time in that first half to recover from conceding so early. It was a bad goal to give away. They didn't pick up the runners. It was poor from uh, Lindelof that the header was weak. It was a good strike. I I don't think you can criticise De Gea for the first goal. You can for the second. But yeah, it was the worst possible start for Manchester United. But to be fair... Ten Hag said to me afterwards, we've been in this situation this season, 7-0 at Liverpool, 6-3 at Man City, Sevilla when they conceded early as well, and they've crumbled. They didn't do that, and they at least made a fight of it. Could David De Gea do anything about the first? I'm not sure. I'm not good. I'll get Terry's professional view, but I think it was just a, a sensational strike that just caught him cold. Because he certainly, I think, came under a little bit of criticism for the second goal, Terry. Yeah, and even with the first one, I, I was surprised that his action it, it went down on one knee. As almost, I, I would like yeah. to have seen him at least go full length and make make the attempt. I don't think he can criticise him too much for the fact that it's where the ball, the trajectory of the, the volley from Gundogan, where it's ended up. But I'd like to have seen him react and at least show some reflexes to try and make the make the save. The second one, yes, it's just a, a, the mistake comes from him not travelling, not following the, the flight of the ball. And we were all surprised because there was no power on the attempt from Gundogan. When it bounces twice before it goes in, it's a it's difficult volley because he has to take a step back as it's reaching him. We could criticise the Manchester United defenders. I think Bruno Fernandes is closest. Maybe he should have got a block as well because he's travelled a long way, and it's only going to Gundogan. 
and Bruno Fernandes makes a half-hearted attempt to get there and block it, and it, then it unsights David De Gea. But his problem, I think, Peter Schmeichel said he should have obviously stepped across a couple of steps and then made the dive. But he's quite static in the centre of goal, which then leaves a lot of goal to cover. I don't know if anyone's mentioned it, Sam, but it was reminiscent of Eric Cantona in that '96 Cup final mm. against Liverpool. Again, he had to sort of take a step back to hit the shot. Didn't hit it that powerfully. And I remember David James at the time, the Liverpool goalkeeper was coming under a bit of stick for that goal. Yeah. Um, do you think that he'll be the number one next season, Terry? Is it time to be a little bit ruthless with him? He's out of contract. I know that they're pretty set that they're going to offer him an, a new contract on different terms because he was at one stage the highest play player at the club, but they're going to offer him a contract on different terms. Or should they just cut ties with him and, and move on? They need a different type of goalkeeper, do they, at this stage? Uh, it's an interesting one because if they they get him to sign the if he does sign the contract, I think he'd be number one choice as goalkeeper. I can't because he, although it's going to be reduced terms, it's still going to be a significant salary. So I can't imagine then that they would bring in another goalkeeper, probably on higher a higher salary than De Gea, to be the number one. So it'd be an expensive backup, David De Gea, if he does stay. So if he stays, I think he'd be number one. He, he does divide opinions, doesn't he? He's, you know, we all know his strengths, his, his shot stopping. He's pretty pretty good on crosses, so he should be for a, a goalkeeper as tall as he is. We know he's not the most technical player when it comes to the ball at his feet. His mistakes he's been out of favour with the Spain squad for ages, though, hasn't he? Yeah, and I, I still don't get that. I still think he is their best goalkeeper. And I, I know that Luis Enrique particularly wanted to play with the ball at, at, out the back, but the goalkeeper he picked, Unai Simon, isn't any better than David De Gea with the ball at his feet. There are other goalkeepers around that are better with the ball. So I, I, that was a that was a weird one. It's uh, for him not to be in the top three, four, five of the national goalkeepers in Spain is is ridiculous. So that is a that's that is a, a strange one. I have to be honest. But I think he's a really good goalkeeper. I'm a big fan. But he's he's he does make mistakes, and his mistakes are highlighted. But then you look at the strengths, and he's. You know the clean sheets he's kept this season for Manchester United. The, the saves he pulls off. It's uh, I think he struggled to find someone clearly better than David De Gea. To be honest, if you're Manchester United now, Crook. Um, I know that you're golfing buddies with Alan Ramsdale, um, and uh, David De Gea hasn't made the, the cut to be able to get on one of those wonderful tours yet. Um, but who is who, who? Who are Manchester United looking at as a possible backup to him? Because Dean Henderson is going to come back from Nottingham Forest. Uh, you've got Heaton there, whose contract is up. Butland's going to Rangers. So what happens with the backup goalkeeper, if that indeed is their philosophy? Well, I think there's some interest in David Raya, but Brentford have been quite steadfast, despite the fact he's only got a year left on his contract. They want big money. So I don't necessarily see that happening. I, I think it's a really good question, because if you look at Manchester United's summer window and the priorities, uh, clearly reinforcing midfield, looks like Mason Mount, uh, will happen if they can agree a fee with Chelsea. There's been talk of Declan Rice, although I wouldn't make United anywhere near favourites to sign him at this moment in time. And they want a number nine. So I think David De Gea, almost by default, uh, will be the number one. He will sign this new contract because they need to spend the money in other areas of the team. Looks like Aaron Wambasaka and Diogo Dallo between them actually have solved one conundrum because this time a year ago, Ten Hag was worried about the right-back area. Looks like uh, both of those will stay. Dallo signed the new contract. Wambasaka, I thought, had a good game. Uh, in the FA Cup final at the weekend. So, again, that's not going to be an area they need to strengthen. So, I think midfield and striker will be where the money is spent and that will be good news for De Gea. Yeah, his quality on the ball wasn't good enough, though, was it, Aaron Wan-Bissaka? It's all right saying that he had a good game defensively, but every time he passed the ball down the channel for Marcus Rashford, the ball was overhit and he couldn't get... And as a result of that, it would run out of play and Rashford couldn't get on the end of it. It's a couple of times, in fact, two or three times, even in the first half, where, you know, he's, he's full of energy, he's only just started the game, and every pass he's playing down that touchline is just just not quite right. The weight on the ball isn't quite right. And that quality, when he gets into the final third, delivering it is something he's he's got to improve on. Look, he's improved on a lot of actual aspects of his game, but that particular thing. And actually, there was one stage when um, Raphael Varane was playing out from the back, received the ball from David De Gea, turned round, looked up the touchline, and Wan Bissaka was on the halfway line. And he turned around to him and he went, What are you doing? Get back. Come closer to me. I can't give you the ball there. One, you've got someone up your backside. Two, you're miles away. He stretched it out too far. Come back. He was going absolutely mad. And at one stage, I just I pointed that out on the television. 
And um, Lee Dixon turned around to, to me and just did a little face and went, that's because he's stupid. <laughs> he doesn't realise what's going on. <laughs> Didn't say it on air, though. Well, I've just given it away now. Um, <laughs> but as we all know, Roy Keane has already outed Lee Dixon as a City fan. So um, it's uh, <laughs> it's probably that reason. I think it's an interesting point you make, though, Sam and, and Alex, about wan He has improved. And and we underestimate the importance of a coach that can improve a, an individual player. So if we've seen an improvement in Wambasaka in, in areas of his game in one season under Ten Hag, then stuff like you're mentioning that those technical aspects can be improved by good coaching. We talk about the manager, but a, a manager has to be a good coach, and the, a, the best managers can improve players' weaknesses. And they're pretty straightforward things for Wambasaka to be uh, Wambasaka to to learn and to improve on. He's still young enough to improve as well. So I, I, I tend to agree with Alex that the right back isn't a, a primary position now where they need to go and spend loads of money because they, they've got two pretty decent ones that, that can still get better. OK, so let's uh, focus on uh, the victors because I know that Crook's dying to talk about the treble quest for Manchester City. Um, one of the good things I thought about Manchester City at the the weekend is that they weren't at their best. They weren't at their free-flowing best. And I mentioned at the top of the uh, commentary that the engine has been idling since the start uh, of, uh, well, since the end of May because they'd won the title on the 20th of May. And since then, they haven't really played a, what you would consider a competitive game. They've been, you know, ticking over, but nothing more than that. And this was the first time they had to really compete since then. So it's about three weeks since they, or two and a half weeks since they've had to, to do that. Um, and as a result, I thought they were, a little, I mean, obviously they started in fifth gear, but after that, they were a little bit not as up to speed as Manchester City usually are, but they have that inner desire, that amazing ability to, to, to compete and to win and to have that graft and nous to know how to get over the line. And that sort of inner strength, is that, that, is that going to take them all the way to the treble? Well, you can see it in the celebrations afterwards. You know, Pep Guardiola wearing his hoodie um, that divided opinion, but he was um, he was quite emotional, wasn't he? Um, after picking up the second leg of this potential treble, uh, I was stood outside the Man City dressing rooms. The players uh, were determined to enjoy the celebration. I spoke to uh, Ruben Diaz for Talk Sport, and and he said the most important thing now is to party tonight and party tomorrow. So they were determined to celebrate it. Looks like Jack Grealish certainly did that. Uh, looking at his social media activity. So I think you're right. I think they have got this inner desire, determination. Yes, they weren't at their best. And there was a danger of that when you suddenly take your foot off the gas in the Premier League, having had to be at full pelt for several games. Sometimes it can be difficult to switch it on and off. I actually think having an FA Cup final in between the last Premier League game of the season and this massive Champions League final will set Manchester City in good stead. I would expect them to be sharper early on in Istanbul. Uh, this is Ruben Diaz speaking to Crookie after the game, and he was also talking about one of his teammates who was terrific on the day. The player of the match, Ilkay Gundogan, who got two goals. He wants him to stay. Well, he's a special player, and uh, the the most impressive impressive thing about him is that he's such a special player. But the more you know him, you realise that he's even more special as a person and as a human being. And uh, from my side, I believe from everyone in the team, but especially from my side. I've, uh, throughout the three years I'm here, I've just been getting closer and closer to him. And it is a true joy uh, to, to share the pitch with him. It is really uh, a fact that makes me happy to, to have him on my side. What do you do with a player like Ilkay Gundogan? He's out of contract. There's lots of talk in Spain, Terry, that uh, he may well be of interest to Barcelona. I, have Barcelona really got the finances to offer him a contract? I'm, I'm never <laughs> entirely sure. I don't even think they're sure. <laughs> well, one or two have left, so that does free up a little bit of money, but then they're trying to save some money to bring Lionel Messi back. But Gundogan is there, there fits their bill in terms of quality, obviously, and because he's a free transfer. So that's the business they're in at the moment. and. I was going to say they're being clever on that front, but you don't have to be too clever to realise that if Gundogan's out of contract, he's worth pursuing. Yeah, he's worth taking um, on. It, yeah, and it's it may appeal to him. I mean, if Manchester City do win the treble, then what left is 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 there to achieve at City, and the opportunity of going to Barcelona and trying something different might might appeal to him. It's uh, but if I was City, I'd do all I could to to try and keep him. How impressed were you with Manchester City over the course of the season? Because I, I think one of the things that sort of probably needs mentioning that it, 
the, the, the triumph this weekend is probably just a, a sort of cap on what has been a brilliant season. They've come from behind to beat Arsenal in the title race. They've won every game in their uh, FA Cup campaign to nil before the final. They've been a relentless winning machine towards the, the last three months of the season where they've hardly had a blip. They I think they dropped points against um, uh, Brentford on the final day of the season, but prior to that, unbeaten in 25 games, which is terrific. And they won most of those, didn't they? And the ones that they didn't win were the ones that they didn't need to win because they'd already uh, secured what was necessary in the Champions League, for example, against Bayern and Real Madrid. How impressed have you been with their relentless nature? Well, they do this on occasions where they're, they're a little bit complacent in the first half of the season. And then there's a sudden realisation that they know they're the best. And there's a realisation that, oh, this season it was Arsenal. In the past, it's been maybe Liverpool, where they suddenly wake up and burst into action. And uh, as you said, they're, they're unbeatable when they're at their best. And, but it takes that little bit of motivation to get them going. And when they did that this year, and they were significantly behind Arsenal at some stages, and but they had games yeah. in hand. But it, it was a genuine threat to their not their title aspirations, but their title of being the best club in in England. And and that that is when then they start to kick into action because they like that title of being the best club or best team around. And then when it's threatened, and they do really get serious, then everyone else has got a problem. And then, no matter how many points deficit there is, they, they, they claw it back because it's a culmination of them being so good. And then if you're Arsenal this season, thinking, oh, no, City have, have cracked into action. They're going to catch us. We can't drop points. We've got to win every game. And pressure is built on, on Arsenal this season. It's been Liverpool in the past. And, and City just keep winning games. And it's, uh, yeah. it, it's incredible what they've done. And it, it's incredible what, they, what they're doing. They've got fantastic players and Gundogan is, is probably underrated over the years. Um, but this season, with the important goals he scored and the quality of the goals that he scored, suddenly brought him to the attention that, that actually, Gundogan's very good. Absolutely. More than very good. He's, he's been terrific, especially towards the latter part of the season. Crook looks like a bulldog chewing a wasp today. He's so furious about the, uh, the cup final defeat and what could happen this week. He is, he's upset about the fact that the historic treble is going to be equaled on Saturday night. Have you got yourself an Inter Milan shirt yet? That's the big question. <laughs> no, I have not got myself an Inter Milan shirt. And uh, do you know what? I, I'm, not, I'm not actually too devastated by what happened at the weekend because, as I've mentioned, you know, United showed a bit more character than they have away from home against the big teams. I looked at it um, going into the game. I think against the top nine in the table away from home, United hadn't beaten any of them. Two points from those uh, eight fixtures against teams in the top nine, which is a, a pretty meagre return. and something that Ten Hag is definitely going to have to work on next season. He's turned Old Trafford into a bit of a fortress after opening day defeat, but the away form has to improve, and, and that will come with... New additions, hopefully, in this summer transfer window. But all credit to Manchester City. You know, the, the best players on the pitch were in City shirts. Gundogan, John Stones, who isn't even a midfielder, dominated the midfield. Carl Walker was excellent. Grealish was was lively. So, Diaz has been superb. I can't remember the last time he lost a game for Manchester City. So, I've got no complaints with what City have done this season. And good luck to them in the Champions League final. I'm sure they're going to win. I'm sure they're going to win fairly handsomely. 29 games for Ruben Diaz uh, without uh, defeat now with uh, him in the team, starting the team. That's amazing, really. Uh, he is a terrific defender. Uh, you're right to mention John Stones, though. I mean, he. I think that transition that they did, I mean, I think if you don't want Manchester City to win the treble, which I'm sure you don't, um, but if you look back at the key turning point, you can blame Tottenham Hotspur, right? Because Tottenham Hotspur took a two-goal lead at the Etihad Stadium. And that really wound Pep up. It really sent him off the edge. That was the day where he went crackers. He turned around to the crowd at halftime when they booed um, and went absolutely mad. And then when they scored to win the game, he turned around and went, oh, you're cheering now, are you? You're cheering now. Went back into the dugout came back out after the game, had a go at the fans in the interview afterwards, had a go at the players saying they were a happy Flowers team and that they didn't um, they didn't play very well. I said to him, well, congratulations for coming back from, from a 2-0 deficit. He went, yeah, yeah, because we won, because we won, because we won. We were, it was a bad performance, bad performance. This, we, I want to see my team. I want to see my team. He kept going on about this. I want to see my team. And then I spoke to Riyad Mahrez on the same day. He said, 
Yeah, he keeps saying that. That's something that he, in the, over the last couple of weeks, he's sort of started to dr- drill into us. Like he, he isn't seeing his team. And obviously, then they got rid of uh, Jao Cancelo. He was sent out to pasture. He started throwing grenades in about Kevin De Bruyne and latterly Carl uh, Walker just to keep everybody on their toes. And and that sort of changed the whole mood since then. I mean, they, they lost again to Tottenham. Um, one nil, which is was just a stupid result, but largely from that moment, from that half time in that game where they were two nil down to uh, to Tottenham, they went on a terrific run, and I think the attitude changed there. And a feature of the season has been that John Stones positioning. It started off, let's play him right back and bring him into midfield, and then against Bayern Munich, he went into the centre of defence and realised they they sort of just said, right, well, okay, we'll go from the centre of defence into midfield because it's a quicker route to get involved into the thick of the action and then Walker can narrow off and we've still got the speed of Walker and we can use stones in midfield. I mean, it was, I mean, tactically, brilliant. I mean, it, and it's worked and I think that's been a feature of the season, Terry. It has in the partnership with Rodri as well because you have two of them now. It used to be just an individual doing it, one player doing it on his own and now John Stones is doing it and then John Stones is now, has the confidence to actually go and play in the the number 10 position you see him making runs in behind the defense of the inside left <laughs> and and you're thinking well this is, was a center back that we knew could play with the ball at his feet bring the ball out the back he's good at passing we know he's a good defender so it kind of fits that he could play that role in in the holding midfield but it's, it's more to him than that he's his intelligence of when to make those moves forward um have surprised me to be honest because he's not blessed with loads of pace but he's making runs in behind that suddenly make centre-backs of the opposing team look and think, that shouldn't be, who's picking him up? Nobody's picking him up because, you know, no one's thinking about John Stones making those darting runs in between, in behind Haaland and getting past Kevin De Bruyne. So, no, he's been brilliant. And the the methodology behind Pep bringing him into that position, and I'm glad you mentioned Carl Walker because there was a period this year where I didn't think Carl Walker was going to be featuring again for City. He was out in the cold. Pep said one or two things that weren't too complimentary to him. He, he basically said he was just quick, didn't he? That's yeah. what he said. He's just quick, and he is quick. I mean, there was a run in the first half. I think it was Sancho had a two-yard head start over 20 yards, and Carl Walker finished two yards ahead of him. And you think, how did that happen? Sancho isn't slow, and we know Carl Walker's quick, but he's so rapid. But Pep pretty he's much fast, said though, all he is, he's quick. Though. No, but... he's not fast, Sancho. That is a that is a problem because you know, as as a player who's coming for big money, he, his impact has been limited on Manchester United, and they've spent a lot of time and energy feathering his nest and making sure he's okay and looking after him, which is great. And they did the right thing, concentrate on his well-being, give him every chance to succeed. But I don't think he's done enough over the period that he's been back. Maybe next season he kicks on, Crook, but I'm looking at him and I'm thinking he's not quick. He's not really got the trick to take on someone at this moment in time. Uh, in, the, in the big, big games, he's, he's good at sort of that wall pass where he gets into position, plays it to someone, receives it again, then gets the ball off his feet and into the box. Maybe it's a shot, maybe it's a cross or whatever, but he hasn't got that turn of pace. He hasn't got that trick to get beyond someone. And as a winger in this game, in the Premier League, you need that. Yeah, well, we spoke last week, and if you remember, I said I would start Ganacho, and I stand by that. I wouldn't have played Sancho. I think you look at the impact that Ganacho made coming off the bench. United were a much better team with him running at Carl Walker, that fearlessness of youth and trying to create bits and pieces. And actually, wasn't too far away from curling one into the corner. I thought Sancho largely was disappointing, and he's underwhelmed. It's two years now. I've not seen any progress. You say it might come together next season. I don't know what you're basing that on because there's no evidence to suggest that the penny's going to drop for Sancho anytime soon. I think he's been okay. poor. So I'm basing that on, I'm basing that probably on the fact that, that you've got to write off almost most of the second year. Um, the first year he was under two managers, Solskjaer and, and Ranić, which the whole club was in a malaise. It was a difficult dressing room, a difficult club to come into. Second year, he obviously didn't kick on the way everyone anticipated under Eric and had, and had his problems. Injury, fitness and mental problems. So he was sent away. So six months of this year, he's been on the fringes and and, and receiving uh, tailored advice. He comes back. He's been okay off the bench. He's had some significant contributions in games since coming back here and there. He's been a bit part player, really. So you're hoping that with that investment in terms of time and energy, they've seen something in him that they think, well, we can get something out of him. And that over the next season, maybe they'll develop him 
a little bit further. Eric Ten Hag has been very good and improving quite a lot of the players so far at Manchester United. So uh, that's all I can base it on. But you're right. The evidence of my eyes suggests there's a long way to go for that to happen. And if United get the players they want, he'll be a bit part player next season. Because mm. I agree with Alex Garnacho was the best attacking player at the weekend. In hindsight, yeah. I would say, looking at it, he should have played. And, you know, Anthony's going to be fit again. It'll be his second season. If they sign a centre-forward, as Marcus Fashford probably moves into a wider position. And then where does that leave Sancho then? If he, he really needed to have an impact this season to, to make up the mind of Ten Hag that we don't need this position fulfilled. I've got Jaden Sancho. He's back to his, he's playing some, you know, some great football. We're, we're happy with that position. But that hasn't been the case. So he hasn't seized that opportunity. And now you do feel that if United are going to strengthen, it's going to be an attack. And he'll be a bit part player again next season, an expensive bit part player again next season. So it's, I think he might miss the, the opportunity now. Uh, talking of missed opportunities, um, Erling Haaland didn't really get too many opportunities on uh, Saturday. He had one decent opportunity, which I think he will, in retrospect, think he should have scored. He hit it straight at David De Gea. Um, he's scored one goal in seven games now towards the end of the season. Um, I'm not suggesting for any any way, shape or form. Don't go there, Sam. A player, a player <laughs> you who know is, what's going to happen. He shouldn't, he shouldn't start the, the, the Champions League final. Of course he should, because he does so much else. I thought he was brilliant in both boxes, by the way. Defending was was terrific, set pieces and stuff like that. It was, it was excellent. Um, and he obviously helped make the, the, the initial goal. And his presence does cause, cause a problem. Um, but are they getting the best out of him or, or do you have to accept when you're in a, a Manchester City team that construct very pretty patterns and don't go as direct as they did in the first minute all the time that sometimes you're he's he's not going to get chances he's not he's not going to score every single game I mean he scored 52 goals Roy Keane did point out that there were 20 games this season in which he didn't score a goal yeah he scored 52 goals but there were 20 games in which he didn't score any Crook. That's quite a high number, actually. I didn't realise it was it was as high as that. But I think up until this little barren spell, if you can call it that, I think he'd only gone a maximum of three games without scoring on one occasion, two on a couple of others. So I don't think it's a massive cause for concern. I think what you know with Erling Haaland is that he's not someone who's going to drop deep and really try and link up the play too much. He comes alive in the penalty area. So therefore, he doesn't necessarily get too many touches of the ball. When he does, they tend to be decisive. And yeah. you certainly wouldn't... <laughs> wouldn't put off anybody who wants to back him to score in the Champions League final because he is the man for the big occasion. Um, did he score against Sheffield United in the FA Cup? I think he's played at Wembley twice this season and not not managed to find the back of the net, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He played in the uh, FA Cup semi-final. Mahrez scored all three goals. Um, I was just trying to tease Crook into calling him a donkey again because uh, Crook <laughs> Learned my lesson on that one. Said, Adrian Durham never lets donkey. me forget it. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll never let you forget that. We'll <laughs> never let you forget that. Um, uh, okay, should we switch our focus to West Ham United? They're preparing uh, to try and fight for a European trophy and lift it for the first time since 1965. It's live on TalkSport, live from Prague, the Conference League final. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Bypassal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertz and the Channelized Bimbingus at the Bypassal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. 
With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18+, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Uh, you'll notice, by the way, uh, Alex, and I, I, I'm surprised you haven't picked this up because usually you're quite critical uh, of me. Um, and that is, that I, I've had a haircut. I had a haircut for the FA Cup final, a haircut for the Conference League final. What do you think? Is it okay? Is it better? It was getting a bit wispy. I've given you enough stick privately about the hair, so I don't think I need to do it publicly. You look ridiculous <laughs> before. You look slightly better now. <laughs> Are we really going down the hair conversation? <laughs> oh, no. Terry, you're not invited, I'm afraid. Saturday, I think, and month, yeah, and yesterday. Mine's looking all right at the moment. <laughs> uh, there's an increasing number of flecks of grey in there. I, I think you worked too hard this season. No, I just being best friends with you, it takes its toll eventually. <laughs> um, um, it's going to be quite a hairy trip to Prague this week uh, West Ham United who won the Cup Winners Cup in 1965 beating 1860 Munich the only other European trophy that they have won they're going to the Conference League final in Prague to the tiniest little stadium that you could hold a European final at what on earth are you doing UEFA I mean, this will be one of those conversations that goes on for a very long time. I hope, I hope that they've done enough in and around the stadium in the city of Prague to accommodate the thousands of West Ham fans that are going. Because every West Ham fan I talk to, I say, are you going? Oh, yeah. You got a ticket? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> which, is, which, which means that it's going to be flooded. That, that, that square in the middle of Prague, I don't know if you've ever been there, Massive, great big uh, square. This is uh, well, there used to be. I don't know if it is now. It was, uh, the last time I went there was probably fifteen years ago. There's a Georgian Dragon pub right in the middle of the square. Now, all that area there, that big square. I don't know what it's like now, but I'm guessing that it's similar. It will be flooded with West Ham fans for the whole week. I would have thought. Uh, I'm arriving on Tuesday morning, but the game itself. I mean, Fiorentina had an average season domestically. I haven't been particularly good. West Ham have had an average season. Uh, domestically, but Terry, we were looking through their squad uh, a little bit earlier, and I've seen a couple of sort of their games now, their highlights of uh, their Euro- European action, and they've got they've got some players that, that that West Ham should be a little bit fearful of. Yeah, and you look at they come from all parts of the world. They all most of them are international players. There are one or two that, that people will recognise as well, and Sophie and Emrabat is is the main one, the the player that Mamesi still at Fiorentina after the World Cup he had from Morocco. And, and they've been a cup team this year. They've got been the Coppa Italia final by Inter Milan. Uh, so they won't want to have two cup final defeats. So maybe their form in, in Serie A hasn't been as impressive as it should have been, but it's been far better than West Ham's. So it, it's kind of, I look at this as, I do hear in the UK, of course, that West Ham are favourites. But when I look at the squad, and I look at what they've achieved in recent seasons. I think it's a this is a fifty-fifty. I think West Ham are playing a good team in the final. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I think when you do look at the odds, everyone seems to suggest that it is going to be a, 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 it, that they suggest it's a foregone conclusion here. West Ham are going to go there. It's a big party. They're going to win. But actually, they're playing Fiorentina. They're a good team. It's definitely not a foregone conclusion. And 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 West Ham, although they've got much better, I think, towards the end of the campaign because they've changed their style back to that sort of more direct, more basic style that David Moyes sort of used when he finished sixth and seventh. I mean, that might well, well upset Fiorentina, but they've they've got a test on their hands here, Crook. Yeah, I think there's a danger of a little bit of English arrogance here. Uh, maybe not even from West Ham fans, actually, because a lot of West Ham fans that I know are quite pessimistic by nature. So I'm not sure you get too many West Ham fans saying they're favourites to lift the trophy, but I think certainly the English media uh, and it, English neutrals, if you like, think they are. But Fiorentina, aside with the great European history, Terry's mentioned Amrabat there. I think he's a player that's very likely to pitch up in the Premier League in the not-too-distant future. So he's a, a real threat in midfield. There's going to be a fascinating battle, actually, between him and and Declan Rice in what surely will be Rice's last game in a West Ham shirt. So I think this is this is too close to call. And again, we've seen from last week's Europa League final that these European finals can be cagey events. I hope it's not as dreadful as that for your sake and the sake of our listeners. But it wouldn't surprise me 
if it goes the distance, extra time and maybe even penalties. I think it'll be a lot tighter than the, the bookmakers' odds are suggesting. And, you know, West Ham, so many fans, so much expectation, haven't won a trophy since 1980. Could that burden of expectation and that pressure just weigh maybe a little bit too heavily on their shoulders? I think they've got the benefit of the fact that they went last year quite some way in the Europa League. They went to that semi-final against Eintracht Frankfurt. I was there for those two legs. And I think that experience is really going to help them because I think it was a sucker punch to lose the way they did. They were probably, arguably, better equipped to have gone through in that semi-final than any other stage, but they lost a player. In, I mean, they, they they didn't switch on in the game against them um, at home. And then the away leg, it was it was ridiculous. I mean, Cresswell getting sent off again was just, it was, it was really poor from him. And as a result of that, the team were up against it. They didn't, have, they didn't stand a chance after that. So um, I think they'll, they'll they'll fall back on that. This is how it felt. We can't afford that again. It is a better group of, of players, I think. There is a little bit more quality in there. Lucas Paqueta has definitely improved the team. Declan Rice is playing some good football at this moment in time. Antonio will lead the line. Obviously, I don't know whether or not his comments about Skamaka that he made this week are that helpful and the way he talked about the change of style under David Boyes. He said, you know, this season we started trying to evolve the style of play, looking to play a little bit more on the floor through the thirds. But we realised by the time we got to November, December time, it wasn't really working for us. So we needed to go back to basics. He sort of talked about Skamaka and why he hadn't made an impact and said, look, with David Moyes as a centre forward, you've got to feed off scraps. He's a fighter, um, but he's not that sort of fighter. He's not that kind of character. He's not going to scrap around for little bits and pieces and and, and try and hold on to the ball. He wants it played to him. He's, he's, a, he's almost got a little bit more talent than that. Um, and I know, although David Moyes has been talking about the, the, the Italian and saying he hasn't really got any issue with him at all, it's not a particularly helpful distraction at this stage, Terry, is it, for, for his own forward to point out that the team has gone back to basics and one of the big money striker that they signed to sort of help them progress doesn't fit into the system. It's a difficult one, isn't it? He does the podcast with Callum Wilson and it's great to have two current players interact and, and engage with, with supporters. They want to listen to their podcast, but they have to be careful. They, they slaughtered Richarlison, which was quite funny on the face of it, but he came back with how many World Cup goals did you two score? And then, so it, you don't, you've got to be, they've got to trick carefully. And of course, when it comes to, he, he probably didn't mean to be detrimental to Skamaka, but it did come out that it could be construed that way. And, and there are, He'd be hoping, I would imagine, that Skamaka don't think, speak too much English and he, <laughs> it's just gone over his head. Because if it had happened when my career, when most of us was British and speaking English, he would have got filled in on Monday morning if he'd spoke about another teammate like that. And, and so you have to be careful that you, it's a fine line. I, I love what they're doing. I love hearing from current players. It makes a change. But they have to be careful and you shouldn't go down that road. And, and Because it can be taken in different ways. You don't want any blur, blurry lines. It has to be your full support. And also, I mean, I was looking at their goal-scoring record this season. Skamakas isn't bad. I think he's got eight and 16 starts. So yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not as if he's been dreadful. And, and, and I think when West Ham went into survival mode, because that they were deep in relegation issues for most of the season. Yeah. So when they wanted Antonio to be fighting for scraps up front, they brought Danny Ings in then it, it probably did suit their style better to have a player like Mikel Antonio that knows the routine, that plays the traditional English style of football that needs to, for you to get yourself out of trouble. So, it, it, as I say, I think it's great they're doing the podcast, but they have to be careful not to criticise former uh, future opponents and wind people up. As I say, it was quite funny, but Richarlison was always going to come back. And now vaguely criticising a teammate, that's a... That's a bit of a slippery road to go down to be honest a quick word uh, from you on David Moyes Alex um, about his future really I mean is he under any threat if they were to lose this conference final and is that a particularly good idea I think it's uh, it's in the balance anyway Sam um, I was told earlier this year that whatever happened between now and the end of the season in terms of Premier League survival in terms of 
winning this conference league. There was every chance that David Moyes could part company with the club anyway. He's got a year left on his contract. Uh, I think a lot of what Antonio was saying there in the podcast really highlighted the fact that maybe this West Ham squad is not necessarily tailored to David Moyes. Kamaka isn't really the type of player that fits the way that Moyes wants to play. You could argue that Pakatar wasn't for much of the season either, although he's been much improved in, in recent weeks and months. So uh, I still think there's every chance that David Moyes either bows out with a European winner's medal in his hands, or he bows out on the back of a defeat in the final. I don't think it's guaranteed at all that David Moyes will be West Ham manager for the start of next season. I don't understand that. I, do, I don't understand it. Can anyone explain it to me? Because I, I went back through the archives, and when West Ham won the FA Cup in 1964, which I think was was probably the heyday, yeah, OK, the West Ham way was very much the uh, the style of play. But West Ham finished 14th in that season, right? They're not particularly regular high finishers in the top flight. When they won the Cup Winners' Cup the following year, they finished ninth, and they were out of both domestic cups in, in rounds four and, and, and three uh, in early in the season. When they won the Cup in 1975, they finished 13th. In 1980, when they won the FA Cup, they were in the second division. They finished in the top 10 three times over the last decade. And David Moyes has been in charge for two of them when they finished sixth and they finished seventh. Now, yeah, this season hasn't gone to plan. Yeah, there may have been a little bit of a hangover from last season when they played so many games and ended up playing late into May in the the Europa League semi-finals. And that whole experience took a little bit of energy out, out of them. But this is West Ham. You know, you go over the course of your history, you know, sixth and seventh, a Europa League semi-final, a Conference League final in the space of three years under uh, David Moyes. That's great, by the way. And yeah, OK, there's been bumps in the road, but West Ham are never going to have a complete straight line vertical progress. There are going to be ups and downs. Do you really think that someone else is going to improve on a sixth, seventh Europa League semi-final Conference League final, taking charge of this team. I'm not sure that they are. I go back to Pellegrini, who they brought in after he won the league. He'd been at Real Madrid. He'd been a success in Spain. He didn't do anything particularly wild for them. In fact, he was out on his ear very, very quickly, and they admitted they made a mistake. Well, I think it's an interesting one. It's it's the it's modern day football, isn't it? That supporters their their patience doesn't last long. And and suddenly they get delusions of grandeur where they think they should be always in that top six, top seven. They should be in Europe every season. That and on top of that, should be seeing the type of football that they associate with their club. Spurs come to mind as a Spurs supporters. West Ham come to mind because they've had the traditional West Ham way. But I think what Alex is saying as well, I think it might come from the, the David Moyes' perspective as well in terms of because of the what's happened this season because of the criticism he got. We don't know about the backing and support he got from the club. It may be that the time that David Moyes, as opposed to the club making the change, it might come from David Moyes making the change. We shall see. Um, Crook's already had a go at David Moyes for about the last 10 years, so he's not prepared to do it anymore. Um, interesting comments from uh, Fiorentina head coach Vincenzo Italiano admitted that they will use tactical fouls to frustrate West Ham. I mean, first of all, he's the manager of Fiorentina taking an Italian club to a European Cup final and his name is Vincenzo Italiano. <laughs> I mean, what I mean, what, what is that all about? Uh, second of all, he's actually quite well thought of and he's he's got a good reputation. But this was stupid, I thought, because the referee now is just thinking, yeah, OK, I'll keep an eye on that. Sort of announced it to the entire world. It's a completely strange thing to do. But anyway, um, look, I'm looking forward to the game. It's live on Talk Sport. It's going to be cracking. Watch out for uh, Lucas Martinez Quatara, who is uh, the centre back. He he's he sometimes can cost Fiorentina the fact that he's pretty aggressive, but he's a good centre back. Wins the ball back really well, and he's very important to them. Uh, wide on the right hand side, Nico Gonzalez, who played for Argentina. He's come to the fore in the Conference League this season and sort of towards the end of the um, the campaign. And the left-back, Terry, is pretty good. Is handy from set-pieces, isn't he? Yeah, Baragi. So, no, I, I look at I mean, Cabral. They've got a Brazilian centre-forward, an Argentinian right-winger, the Croatian left-wingers, as I say, the Italian internationals. So, no, they're, they're I'm not going to say they're a force to be reckoned with, but they're not to be taken lightly. And they're, they're a decent team. So, 
if West Ham hit, if West Ham has to be at their best actually to win this. Anything short of that, Fiorentina have got the potential to to beat them. So it's a it's a fifty fifty call. They certainly do. Let's switch focus to the Premier League now. Have Spurs finally got their new manager at the seventh time of asking and about what is it now? Sixty plus days. Wow. <laughs> news coming out of Scotland here. The Celtic have applied for exemption with UEFA for Yokohama Marino's boss, uh, Posta Co- was it Posta Kuglu? Posta Kuglu to manage in Europe. And it's Celtic who win the old firm game by two goals to one and they win the Scottish League Cup. Celtic clinch back-to-back SPFL Premiership titles, their second under manager Ange Postecoglou. Talk Sports understands Celtic are bracing themselves for the departure of their manager Ange Postecoglou. The decision when it gets made with him, I think he'll, I think he does have the capability to mm. go and do it. Tottenham are expected to step up their interest after this weekend's Scottish FA Cup final. They win that, and you would imagine they will. That would complete a domestic treble for Postecoglou. He's a good manager. All the doubts that were had a year ago by all the naysayers. Well, there you are. There's your answer. You've got a proper manager. Right, let's talk about Tottenham Hotspur, uh, your old club, Terry. Ange Postacoglu closing on the Spurs job. Crookie, what's the exclusive? What can you tell us? Has he has he turned it down this morning? Because that's <laughs> well, yeah, well, this is what, what happens. It's, um, it's fraught with danger trying to cover this this Tottenham managerial search because every time you think they've found a solution to the puzzle, there's a spanner in the works. But I was told on Sunday afternoon by a, a very reliable source that this is pretty much a, a done deal. Postacoglu keen now to relocate to North London. Probably feels he's taken Celtic as far as he can with that domestic treble completed at the weekend. And it's not a complicated deal for Spurs to do because he's only on a 12-month rolling contract, so compensation should be relatively easy to agree. But then I'll caveat that and say this is Tottenham and we've been down this road before. I think he ticks a couple of the boxes. He plays attractive football. He is a project manager they're looking for. Probably a little bit older, um, maybe, than they intended at the start of this search when they were looking for a young up-and-coming coach. I'm not sure that, what, 56, 57, he ticks that particular box. But again, Terry's been talking about delusions of grandeur. Tottenham fans, a lot of them are turning their noses up at this appointment. I wonder who they thought realistically was going to take the job. I wonder if they had their head turned with the interest in the likes of Union Nagelsmann. He was never going to be the Spurs manager. Pochettino might have been, but they never picked up the phone. So I think Postacoglu probably is just about as good as they could have got at this moment in time. There was never any chance that Nagelsmann was going to take that job, and it was it was never it was never going to happen. I don't understand why they were linked with him. It was like well, those the, the, those old links they used to have with players. They're going to get this player. They're going to get that player, and then they, they didn't because that, that's what they do. Um, I, I, have you read anything about uh, Postecoglou? Because I spent a lot of time actually at the weekend going through his history. He's a fascinating, fascinating character. I mean, he, I sort of cursed, first came across him um, as the Australian manager. Um, just before the, the the World Cup, when I was getting ready for the World Cup in 2018, and he ditched them beforehand because on a point of principle, like, I, I think he wasn't given the investment or the the, the, the package of the, the the sort of training base that they wanted. I, I know they were sent to do a logistic. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, some sort of contractual thing. But he uh, he, he pulled the plug and he went right, okay, I'll leave, no problem. He got them to the the World Cup and then went, now nah, I'm going. Um, and he went off to the J League. He's got such a good personality. He's so like clear and direct the way he speaks. And I think in modern management, that's really important for players. If you look at the successful coaches, they're very clear with their instructions and how they give players sort of the diktat of what they want to achieve and impressing their philosophy on them. And I think he'll be a good acquisition for Spurs. I think this is I think this is this is this is probably the best outcome. But Crook, just remind us of the statement that Dave Daniel Levy issued when they said they were looking for a new boss. I don't want anyone to sit there and believe it when Spurs say he was always our number one target because he doesn't fit the criteria of the first statement. So don't tell me, do not, whatever you do, believe it when Daniel Levy comes out next week and says, we only ever had eyes for Ange because it's not true. They'll say it. I'm telling you they're going to say it, but it's not true. I think you're right. Um, you know, the, the briefing coming out of Spurs all summer has been there. There hasn't been a number one target. They're doing their due diligence, but you can't really do your diligence without settling on a number one target. And I, I think at one stage, certainly Arna Slot was that man. 
Obviously, he used the interest in Spurs to get himself a lucrative new deal at Feyenoord. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see what Daniel Levy does say. And actually, we had a caller on the boot room on Sunday night, and he was exasperated with Daniel Levy. Not so much over this managerial search or the lack of silverware, but just the lack of communication from Levy, because he only ever really speaks to the fans via these statements that appear at the end of the season, or he goes and speaks to a batch of university students. I mean, you'd never catch him coming on Talk Sport, by the way, and I'm sure it'd be a fascinating debate between him and Simon Jordan. And I do think, and Antonio Conte made this point, didn't he, that as the custodian of the football club, maybe Daniel Levy owes it to those Spurs fans to be a bit more open with the media and be a bit more transparent. They talk. They 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 get on well, Jordan and uh, Simon and um, Daniel. And I, I I think Simon will coax him on at some stage. I think Simon's. I think he's got that um, that in his mind that he wants to do that. So hopefully they'll they'll manage to get Daniel into the studio at some point because I think it'll be important for because look he does get a lot of flack and he doesn't ever de- defend himself. And his policy is to sort of like say nothing, admit nothing, apologize for nothing, just, just crack on and it will all go away, but it isn't going away. I think that whatever happens with Spurs this summer, there's going to be a fight and mainly because they've also got to resolve not only the managerial situation, Terry, but the future of their star player um, in Harry Kane, because Karim Benzema announced that he's going to be leaving Real Madrid this weekend. And I think it was a bit of a surprise to the club. He went to them last week, said, I've had this brilliant offer from Saudi Arabia. I want to go. Can we call it quits here? They said, reluctantly, okay. But it did catch them on the hop. So they're immediately looking for for someone else. They've signed a young striker, 16-year-old Endrick, for a fee that could reach 60 million euros. But does buying someone of Kane's age, therefore, fit the bill for them at this moment in time? Terry? Yeah, I think that the way we have to talk about the Real Madrid this episode with Benzema is, is completely took them by surprise because they assumed he was going to sign another year's contract to stay. There's a number of them out of contract this summer. He was one of them and they always expected him to stay. There was no hint of him leaving. But then suddenly this ridiculous offer comes out of the blue. And when you hear it, you think, well, he's 36 next birthday. He's... Not been as good this year. He's still got 31 goals in all competitions, but the season before was the was the season that they they won the league, they won the Champions League, he won the Ballon d'Or, he scored loads and loads of goals, and was recognised. You know, finally for all those years, 14 years he's been at Real Madrid, but he stepped out of the shadows of Ronaldo and become a, a genuine superstar himself. So when you get the offer, it's over 300 million, I think, over a couple of years. Is it going to get any better than last season? No. Is he going to get be any better next season for Real Madrid? No, because he, he's not been able to play as many games this season. He's been had to be he's had to be selective. He can play midweek, can play weekends, and and that's not ideal. But they never had any plan to replace him, and they've never had a plan for anyone to challenge him at Real Madrid. That's there's it's been like a graveyard for centre forwards that have gone to Real Madrid in the hope that they could be the number one striker. It's never going to happen. It was never going to happen and they disappear and their careers go downhill. So they've never had any plans. So suddenly this has happened and then you're looking at a very, very short list of potential replacements. It's not a long list. I mean, Benzema is as good as it gets. And he's not your traditional centre forward. He's one that drops in and plays off the front and he, he gets involved in all aspects of the game and scores goals. And there aren't too many of those about. You can get one of in the best centre forward in the world that just scores goals. Haaland, for instance, would get the goals, but he wouldn't replace what Benzema does at Real Madrid. So you, you, it's hard to find a direct replacement unless you look at someone like Harry Kane who can do that. And Harry Kane drops in. He drops wide. He's a distributor. He's a, he's a player that makes goals as well as scores goals. So that list of replacements is... I can only think of two names on it. Ossiman and Harry Kane. So if... if- it is to be Kane, or if Kane is the one that they settle upon, is this a deal that Real Madrid think that they can do? Financially, yes, they can. I mean, Jude Bellingham is all it's all but done. But I'm wondering now if this will have an impact on that deal because it's not signed off. It's it's not been all, all tied off yet with Dortmund and, and Bellingham. Everything's been agreed with Jude Bellingham. But they weren't thinking of spending another another £100 million on top on a striker. Um, perhaps in, they were looking at Benzema holding on long enough for them to get Mbappe in the next year or so. So this has completely thrown all their plans into disarray. Marco Asensio has, has left as well. He's going to be leaving on a free transfer. It's, there's other players at Real Madrid that their future is uncertain. So suddenly gone from seeing Real Madrid having a 
a disappointing season. I have to be I have to be honest, but not needing major surgery suddenly it does. You know, a number of players will look at Benzema and think, well, if he's gone, is it the time for a change? Modric is out of contract, as I say. There's Danny Ceballos is out of contract. There's going to be a massive change at Real Madrid. And perhaps they didn't expect to have to spend another £100 million on a striker, you know, as, as well as buying Jude Bellingham. So it's it's going to be interesting. But as I said, that shortlist to replace him is really they've paid, small. They've paid up Eddie Hazard as well, haven't they? Um, so he's yeah. going to be allowed to, to, to leave. So, Crook, in terms of Kane, are Tottenham bracing themselves for, for a, a bid now from, from Real Madrid? Because as Terry says, when it comes to replacements, there's not many that fit the bill quite like Harry Kane. I think the way that I phrased it on Sunday was that Real Madrid ready to test Tottenham's resolve because we know that Daniel Levy is reluctant to sell Kane despite the fact he's only got a year left on his contract. He certainly doesn't want to sell him to a Premier League rival. I think Manchester United will be advised to not waste another summer chasing a player that is unlikely to be gettable, as they did with De Jong last year, and focus on other targets. He's not going to want to sell him to Chelsea either. If Real Madrid come in with a bid, and I think it would take a bid of well over £100 million, then Daniel Levy will have a decision to make. And Harry Kane will have a decision to make, because we know that he wants to be the Premier League's leading goal scorer. To do that, he needs to play two more seasons. Um, But how do you turn down... Real Madrid and the chance to pull on that famous white jersey. It's going to be a, a real head scratch of a cane if, and it's a big if, if Real Madrid can come up with an offer that Daniel Levy is prepared to accept. If Real Madrid come calling, you take it, don't you? I mean, I mean, the, the long line of, uh, of of players that have been uh, targeted by them, there's not many that turn around and say, no, nah, I don't fancy it. I mean, this is Real Madrid at the end of the day, Terry. This is this is the club that have got the storied history, more European Cups than anybody else. They believe the Champions League belongs to them. It's their cup. They just want to to make sure that they win it. Um, and, and he doesn't win trophies. He wants to win trophies. I mean, there was a, a discussion. I don't know. You, you can tell us about this, actually. There was there was something about him going to Madrid, wasn't it? Did he go to Madrid at some stage over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I was told a few weeks ago that he'd been in Madrid uh, playing golf, actually, which, you know, listen, I've played golf in <laughs> Portugal. It doesn't mean I'm about to sign for Benfica, but you, you can't help put, put two and two together, can you? When I was given that information a few weeks ago, it did sort of raise my eyebrows, but I couldn't really see where he would fit in. But then Benzema announces that he's off to Saudi Arabia and all of a sudden the, the dots start to join up, don't they? <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Just what the Real Madrid would be excited about, wouldn't it? Another British player bringing his golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a factor though, Terry, because he might look at Gareth Bale and his relationship with the Spanish media and think, well, actually, yeah. I've got a quiet life here at Tottenham. I'm a massive fish in a small pond. Do I really want the aggravation? And I think his, his wife is pregnant, isn't she as well? So that will come into consideration. I, I do think that it is going to be... I mean, listen, he's Harry Kane and he gets a lot of attention in this country anyway, right? Okay, let's, let's, let's have that right. But ultimately, going to Spain and playing as the number nine for Real Madrid, your life is changing to an exactly. exponential degree, isn't it, Terry? Just give us a sort of flavour of what it will be like for him. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Sam. I'm glad you made that point. I was going to make that point as well. When you go to a Clasico and you just think, you're looking, I played in... North London derby and Manchester derby and commentary against Leicester and Wimbledon against Millwall. Might as well throw those two in as well, the derby matches. But when you go to a Classico, you look at it and you think, what you would have given as a player to play in that, whether it's at the Camp Nou, whether it's at the Bernabeu, it's just the biggest game in world football, whether we like it or not. They normally have a collection of the best players in the world all playing on one pitch. And, and I, every time I went, I was looking at Gareth Bale and thinking, I'm not lucky, but how fortunate is he to be able to play in these stadiums with all this focus all around the world because it's the Classico. I, I, I personally, I can't imagine a player turning down Real Madrid or them being their number nine. And it will take his, you know, he's known around the world, but in terms of worldwide status, if he went to Real Madrid and scored as many goals as he does for Spurs and plays in the same way as he does for Spurs, as if he's going to win the, win the Ballon d'Or. And, and be recognised as the best striker in the world. Whereas at the moment, outside of these shores, people think he's a really good player, but they, they, they don't know the truth of it. But it's, you know, Real Madrid is something else. Terry, the other thing is, is that we've got another two years of La Liga 
on ITV4 together. So uh, we would love him to go <laughs> to Spurs. Yeah. We'd love him and to go Bellingham. from Spurs to Real Madrid. Bellingham, It'd be great for us. Kane in, in Madrid's team would be, yeah, be, would raise the interest, that's for sure. But no, it'd be oh, hard yes, to turn them Oh, yes, it certainly down. would. It would be hard It to would be down. brilliant. Uh, Terry, thank you very much for your time. Um, we've really enjoyed it, having you on today. We loved it. Uh, good luck uh, over the next couple of weeks. Um, Crookie, I will see you, well, I suppose we'll do a podcast on Thursday ahead of the um, your trip to Istanbul. When do you go? You go on Thursday, do you? Yeah, it's going to be tricky, isn't it? Because you're going to be travelling back from Prague. I'm, I'm going to be travelling to Istanbul. It's going to be a logistical nightmare, but I'm sure we can make it work. Yeah, we'll try and do it from Prague and Istanbul. Let's just try and do it that way. Let's see if it can work. Uh, because we've got West Ham versus Fiorentina uh, on uh, Wednesday, 8 o'clock. Saturday night, 8 o'clock, Manchester City against Inter Milan. Both the Europa Conference League final with West Ham involved and Manchester City involved in the Champions League final are live on Talk Sport over the course of the next week. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18+, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.